When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're listening to Justice with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In the final episode of our series exploring motherhood in the justice system, I speak with Lily Lewis again to reflect on what we've heard and the solutions to some of the challenges we've explored this series. We look at what else is needed, such as continued campaigning on these issues and building community alternatives to custody that keep mothers and children together. Importantly, we discuss the evidence we hope to gather through our Hope Street pilot with evaluation lead Emma Pluggy at the University of Southampton. Finally, we look forward with hope that the justice system can be reformed to better support mothers and their children. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back Lily Lewis onto the podcast to discuss her thoughts and feelings on what she's heard throughout this series and where she thinks we should go next as a sector in improving support for mothers. So Lily, it's great to have you back on the podcast. And today we are going to have a chat about the motherhood series that has just been recorded. And I was really interested to hear your views on, you know, quite a lot of different themes came up. But was there anything that surprised you particularly out of out of this series, given your your experiences? Yeah, I think I was surprised and not surprised at the same time. But the area of childcare resettlement rattle really stood out to me. And after listening to the podcast, I went away and did a bit more research because I remember when I first went into prison, my um, senior officer asked, was I the primary carer before prison, which I wasn't. And she said, oh, that's such a shame because if you had have been, we could get you out on childcare resettlement. So obviously I didn't think much about that from that conversation because I knew it wouldn't apply to me. But when I was a Samaritan's listener, I did work with women who were trying to access this and were finding it really difficult. So when I've looked at the actual ruling around this, I found out that if you have a child and you were the primary carer and they were up to the age 16, I'm not sure why that wasn't 18, but it's 16, that you are eligible immediately for childcare resettlement rattle. There is no eligibility date. So from day one of your sentence, you could apply for this. It would initially start with days out, but you could actually have a one night or one period every 28 days of a night stay with your child or children. I didn't know much about this at all. And I sort of thought, God, I've spent years working in women's prisons. And it's amazing how much one doesn't know, even when you're really close to it. 
That's a legal requirement, are we saying? Yeah, so that's from the PSI or the PSO. Unless you, because we know that women's prisons, we have a cat, we have open or closed. So if you were classified A, so you were a lifer or a serious crime, you wouldn't be entitled to this. But anybody other is. And I don't know one woman in the four years I was in prison that was aware of that. I do remember Kate Lill from Prison Advice Service. I think that was the second episode of the podcast, if anyone wants to listen back. She touches on this, but it's really interesting that that so few people know about it. And certainly it's not it's not happening in the way it should. And it also seems that staff have no idea in the main. I don't know whether they don't have any idea or it would create a lot of work because imagine all these women would have to be risk assessed. And from an if, if you're in a closed prison, such as Style, Foston, Drake, it would take a lot of management to get these women out and in. So I, I understand that. But I just think it's so sad and unfortunate that so many women would have been able to have had the benefits of this and children as well. Let's not just think about mum, that the children would have had the benefit of seeing mum and overnight stays from very early on in the sentence. So that's quite interesting in the sense that if it's a legal requirement, then obviously there is the services duty bound to provide it. So if someone was to mount a legal challenge around it, Now, there's all sorts of reasons why women won't and why women can't. But that leaves a bit of a question mark, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that is what would be interesting to me to to see if women were, if any other women were aware of it or have been offered it or it was just the women that I came across. But I'd been in so many prisons and I didn't know any women going out early on in their sentence to see children. So I can't see that I would have missed that. That's really interesting. To be continued, that's another thing that one yeah. small thing can, uh, can, can pick up on. Was there anything that particularly either changed your mind about things or changed your perspective or any thoughts and feelings that came out of the series for you? Yeah, I think for me, when I was listening to Laura Ab- Abbott, the In Pregnancy in Prison Part 1, she made a... Um, statement that when she left the prison gate she had this feeling of relief and she describes prison as being tense and brutal and that was something that really awakened my memory um when I left prison eventually left for good was released and was away from prison and the the prison gates I remember thinking how tense and brutal my life had been for the four years and I think while you're in there it's not something you're as aware of as when you're out but I just found it really interesting that somebody that was able to come in and go out freely would still have them similar feelings um and it just elevates it even more how brutal and tense a prison environment is I suppose it's a bit of a survival mechanism isn't it when you're experiencing something bad I guess we we sort of close down, don't we? And you just have to get through it. And it's not until you're out the other side that you go, oh my God, did that just happen? Yeah, I think for me, whenever I saw anybody that seemed in crisis or really emotional, it was seen as a weakness by most of the other prisoners. So you become hardened to your own emotion because 
to show emotion or sadness or weakness, you would then be targeted. So I think you do have the shield around you to protect yourself. Mm. And on the podcast here, on the Justice podcast, we always try and think about the solutions and the things that give people hope because all the subjects are quite deep, aren't they? And can be upsetting. So, so was there anything sort of within this series that made you sort of think, great, you know, there are some solutions out there. What can we all be championing? And anyone who's listening that's in a position of influence and, or, you know, what is it that stood out for you? I think all different women, we all came from different backgrounds and we all had different experiences. But I think the thing that came out clear was that we all felt that there should be another option for women. Everybody had that same undertone that actually we need to be looking at places like Hope Street and community rehabilitation. Every single person on the podcast would say that same thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And certainly the police that I speak to, members of the judiciary, some of them, um, it seems to be a sort of general consensus. It's just trying to keep pushing, isn't it, for it to become the norm. Did people talk about solutions that you think could work particularly? Because, of course, what annoys me so much is that we have these solutions, we know what it is we need to do, but it's just trying to get it done and trying to get these sort of solutions, you know, rolled out really, isn't it? So was there anything in particular that you thought, right, if we ran with that, that would make a significant difference? Yeah, I think um, the social workers, when I was listening to their podcast, I thought that it was a great idea and a great pilot that they are inside women's prisons. And it almost seems it should be a given that if we've got women in prison with children who are under social care or social services, that we should have somebody that we can liaise with within those prison walls. And I think that was the hardest thing for me because I had two children in foster care is that I had to go through the social worker for any communication and trying to get through to a social worker on a prison phone is really difficult. So it just makes sense that if there had been a social worker that was available, um, I'm sure lots of women would have took advantage of that to find out what was happening with the children and arrange contacts and just to have that easier communication. Yeah. And when you think about you know, yes, that would be a cost to the service, but quite frankly, it's something that needs to be done. And the benefits would outweigh the cost that goes in, surely, you know, to be able to have someone who can do that admin, who can make those calls, who can liaise with women. That's when you see the self-harm coming down. That's when you see the behavior improving. Everyone in the prison, therefore, is having a better time. You know, it's just so... Yeah, it just seems... Yeah, so obvious. Um, And I think as well, when we're looking at women who are maybe pregnant and then their children will go out of the prison, again, that that would be a much smooth, even as difficult or hard as it may be. It may make that transition a lot easier if you've got somebody within the prison that can help you and support you with that. What would you want anyone who has been listening to the podcast um, to take away from the series, do you think, in particular? I think it's the same thing that I I talk about a lot is that we do need to see a change. And we talk about this and we've been talking about this for years and years, but we need to be protecting women who are pregnant 
and who are entering into the criminal justice system. And we need to be asking the question, when is it right for a pregnant woman to be in prison in a cell? Um, and just women in general, regardless of with or without children, we need to be looking at how women are when they come out and the trauma that is embedded into you from spending time in prison, whether it be a short time or a long term. And just I think we all need to pull together and, and make those changes. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think I think for me, having having interviewed all these people and sort of being sat in the middle, being able to listen to everyone talking and from so many different points of view, it's difficult, I guess, for listeners who haven't worked in this space and are maybe learning about it. Maybe listeners haven't been into a prison. Maybe they don't know any prisoners and haven't haven't been able to talk to them. But I always think it's worth trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone. So if you're a woman listening who has been pregnant, try and imagine actually what that would be like if you're locked in your cell. You can't eat the food that you need to eat. You can't eat the amount that you need to eat. You're, you might be feeling sick like I did every single day of my pregnancy. You know, you're hot, you're cold, you've got itchy legs. There's all sorts of weird things going on with you when you're pregnant. To be able to try and really imagine what that's like and put yourself in the in the shoes of others is probably the most important thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think when I talk to people about it, I do say that go and sit in the bathroom, shut the door and just imagine you can't get out and see how long it is before you want to get out. And it's seconds, not even minutes for, for most people, because when they thought that they can't get out, they want to get out more. And I think unless you've been in that position, it's it's so hard to even explain what that's like. You're literally in a in a box and you can't get out. I thought that when we went through COVID that we might have learned a lot of lessons through that when women would have been locked up more. But we're yet to see some changes, I guess. Well, Lily, thank you so much. I think having having your expertise and your your experiences woven through this series has made it really, really impactful because people can't argue with those who've experienced it firsthand. And as I've said before, and I'll say again, I often get people saying to me, with slight disbelief about some of the things I talk about when it comes to women in prison, because quite a lot of it is actually quite unbelievable, if we're going to be honest. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much. It's hard going over all these things, um, I know. So thank you so much for your expertise and your time. No, thank you for letting me be part of this and hopefully part of the change. So thank you. Looking to the future, it's really important that we continue to work together across the sector to campaign for reform. One example of this is the No Birth Behind Bars campaign, which Naomi and Sam from Birth Companions spoke about in a previous Justice episode. We're focusing not just on improving standards of care, you know, in custody, but on the really important issue that you both raised, which is sort of sentencing working upstream to stop women getting into custody in the first place. On the issue of mother and baby units, as Sam says, they can be helpful for some women, you know, with the level of care perhaps that's available that they wouldn't get elsewhere. But actually there is a, a better way, there is an alternative way, and that should be giving women and children the care they need in the community. The, you know, the campaign for not putting pregnant women behind bars is still ongoing. I mean, you know, in an ideal world, they would say tomorrow you know pregnant women shouldn't be behind bars and they should instead look at community 
based sentences and I would hope that you know that is going to happen sometime in the near future but I think for now like the work that I mainly do with birth companions I'm trying to make some changes I think things are happening slowly but you know again on the point you can make changes but you're still putting a pregnant woman and a child behind a locked door inside a prison so you know that's never going to be all right that's never going to be safe next we speak to emma pluggy who was the lead at the university of southampton for our evaluation of hope street hope street aims to be a safe and viable community alternative to custody for women who would otherwise be imprisoned unnecessarily on short sentences often due to a lack of safe accommodation or concerns around their well-being the project brings accommodation for women and their children together with trauma-informed support and access to services through a 24-hour hub. Hope Street has been purpose-built and specifically designed by and for women to create a welcoming home environment, designed with communal as well as private spaces, an on-site creche and play areas for children. As well as influencing and campaigning, action is needed to show that there is another way to treat women and their children. We hope that Hope Street can be a blueprint for change across the entire justice system. I'm Emma Pluggy. I'm a um, public health trained doctor and a researcher at the University of Southampton. And I'm one of the leads, along with uh, Professor Julie Parks, who's leading the team who will be evaluating the Hope Street project. Which is super exciting. Could you explain a little bit about the evaluation? And of course, this evaluation is five years, isn't it? It's a big one. It's a big one in many ways, not just for the length of time, the five years, but um, I, I think the nature of it, the complexity of it and what we're trying to, to capture. So thinking about the evaluation, I think the most important thing that we're trying to capture is, is what is the impact on the women um, who are going to Hope Street? What's the impact on them as individuals, but also their families? Because obviously the idea that uh, the children can stay with them potentially is, is such an important part of, of the whole evaluation um, of the whole project. Um, so, so we're going to be looking at the impact in, in the broadest terms. So obviously I'm a health researcher and we'll be looking at health outcomes, which are very important for these women, but much more broadly than that, looking at their um, social outcomes in terms of relationships, their employment, their housing, you know, at the absolute fundamentals of, of, of I suppose, hopefully a, a happy and healthy existence for them. And of course, looking at um, criminal justice outcomes as well. So their contact with the criminal justice once they're in in um, system once they're in Hope Street, but also trying to look at the impact on their families as well, their children who are in Hope Street, but perhaps more broadly than than that. And we look, want to see how this these things change as they go through Hope Street and into the Hope Houses across Hampshire, um, and hopefully <laughs> into their own secure housing uh, at the at the other end. It sounds really multifaceted. Is that unusual for an evaluation to be so sort of multi-layered? Probably the short answer is is yes. I think very often more and more we see that sort of health and social care are linked. But this has another sort of um, 
dementia in, ter- in terms of the contact with the criminal justice system. And in sort of um, health research speak, we're, we're evaluating what's known as a complex intervention, which is Hope Street. Um, uh, and I think not only are the outcomes multifaceted, you know, complex, and, 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 and we're going to have to capture lots, but we need to understand what's going on. So we're going to have to sort of capture all the many facets of, of Hope Street. I mean, you know, what what is it that leads to the change if there are positive changes, potentially negative changes? We, we need to find explanations for those. So we've really got to understand what's going on at Hope Street in terms of the sort of trauma-informed care, you know, how the, the relationships within Hope Street um, and the built environment, you know, it, 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 there are so many parts to it. Um, so, so we're going to have a real challenge. It'll be very exciting to look at all those facets as well. And what about the balance between the qualitative entity of it and the quantitative? Because in my mind, one shouldn't have one without the other. And these things are balanced. But of course, we know some people are much more data driven and much more interested in that. I see the point, you know, that's obviously valuable data, but the stories are important and there's sort of more qualitative elements. How does the evaluation kind of stack up in that sense? Yeah, well, it's it, we're definitely going to be using both qualitative and quantitative methods, um, and and I agree with you. I don't I don't think you can have one without the other. I think you know we've got a very strong health economics um, strand to it, and we're going to be producing a lot of numbers in terms of changes in women's mental, physical, social well-being, and and contact with the criminal justice system, because I think policymakers are going to, they want to see the numbers, they want to see the numbers. And so we will be producing those. But equally, I think we need to understand what's behind the numbers. And you can only do that with the qualitative work. Um, And so we have got a really powerful qualitative strand, I think, not least because um, uh, we have people with lived experience who will be leading that. And not only that, we will be developing our team as, as time goes on, because we what we want to do is actually train women in Hope Street who are interested in becoming researchers to actually become part of the research team. And they will be undertaking qualitative research. Um, so, so we want to definitely have a very strong qualitative element whilst appreciating at the same time that the policymakers like the numbers. And is that a first for you, bringing women on sort of incrementally as an evaluation evolves? Is that something that's normal? It's not something that's usual. Um, I'm increasingly, it's interesting, I've sort of been in this field, what, 15, 20 years working with women and in contact with the criminal justice system. And and there was when I started out, there was barely any any sort of um, nod to these women, which now, looking back, seems utterly bizarre. Um, but increasingly these days, uh, you know, it's not not just a question of being convinced of their value. I think it's it's just and ha- it being a must do now if you have to if you secure funding. I think it's it's really understanding how important it is and having seen how actually having lived experience in a research project, how it transforms it, actually. And Hope Street is a five year pilot. You'll be with Hope Street during that time. And then is there a sort of a big unveil at the end of 
this is what we found or how how will that work? Well, we hope to be reporting our findings sort of certainly at least on an annual basis. Um, but I think, in you know, we will be working with Hope Street to, to, to put put things out there as, as soon as we we find important and interesting findings um, so it won't be the big unveil at five years however I think in terms of numbers we we you know reaching statistical significance we're back to what what the powers that be want to see it might be that it's going to take all of those five years to get the numbers sufficient numbers up and because Actually, we want this to be the best evaluation there has been, the most robust. And this is about, you know, producing robust evidence. And do we have a comparison group? We absolutely have a an imprisoned comparison group at the moment, or, or we will have, <laughs> uh, making preparations for that. Um, but also with thinking um, of looking to develop a community comparison group, so women who are on probation potentially in the community. But I think we've got to see who's coming in to Hope Street in those first six months, reflect on that, take stock and think, right, these are the women who are going to make the most uh, convincing uh, best comparison group. Exactly. And I think another really important part is the economics, right? And is this cost effective? Um, Are there better outcomes? You know, those are two things that we're really looking for, isn't it? And that's not to say that um, something like Hope Street should or could be done on the cheap, because quite frankly, when you do that, they don't work as well. But actually, is there a good cost effectiveness, good outcomes? I guess you're looking at all of that too. Yeah, absolutely. And we're so lucky to have um, Professor James Raftery on the on as a member of the t- team who is so engaged with this and so in- enthusiastic about looking at this. The core team is sort of numbers about 10 at the moment. But as I said, the exciting thing is it's going to be getting bigger, we hope, as we, we train the Hope Street women as they come through and, and they will join our, our team. I think it's characterised by diversity and breadth, the breadth of experience and and expertise. So if we start with the people with lived experience, so we've got Paula Harriet, who leads involvement at the Prison Reform Trust. She's a co-app along with EPIC. So EPIC are an organisation that have people with lived experience working for them and um, lots of experience working with women training women up with lived experience to become researchers so that's that's really exciting then we've got a whole university based team we've got another donna our wonderful research fellow who's who's very much full time on this project who comes from more sociological background her training we've got Professor Kathy Kendall who trained in criminology Sarah Morgan an, an epidemiologist Uh, James Hall, whose particular expertise is in children. So that's great. And of course, myself and James Raftery, uh, the health economist. So a huge breadth of different disciplines uh, and expertise and experience. But but, um, I think one of the key things that we have always been very clear about is is the the value of the sort of knowledge and understanding generated by perhaps the university people you might say that the, you know our, our numbers and what have you is of equal value 
to that generated by the people with uh, lived experience um, and expertise by experience. Yeah, fantastic. And you will plan to be on site really once a week. Um, how does that work? How do you get alongside these women who, you know, will come from these different backgrounds and circumstances? How do you intend to sort of seamlessly get into the team and the women and kind of, you know, ask what might be prying questions in a sort of sensitive environment? Yeah, no, it is. It is. I, I mean, I think we need to be very much become regular visitors, if you like, sort of known faces there. Um, and Donna will un- definitely be coming down at least once once a week. But but I think we want to be seen as just other people wandering around, you know, very much um, there. And then finally, it's five years. Um, so when did you start and when does the five years come to an end? So officially, it, it, it really started about a year ago. So, so in the early part of 2022, when we started gathering sort of routine data on the criminal justice system and making preparations, the five years comes to an end, I think it's the end of March 2027. Which feels quite um, quite soon. <laughs> I well, can't believe that time has passed already. Yeah, no, no, nor, nor can I. And it's racing upon us. And well, just really looking forward to it. But but I think you know we've got to have an eye on the future the whole time in terms of securing more funding and. Um, you know, thinking creatively as well about, you know, could we be doing some very imaginative, creative uh, work with the children, following them up longer term uh, to see that the outcomes are there. I mean, realistically, five years is no time at all. We don't want to be in a position, do we, later on down the line going, oh gosh, perhaps we should have started doing that thing with the children because before you know it 10 years has passed and um, and as you say there's such a a lack of um, data and evaluation out there that this really is such an opportunity so if there are any interested funders uh, listening then you know I'm sure you're open to a conversation aren't you Emma? (laughs) Very open to a conversation and I think you know I think let's highlight the children I mean the children of people who've been in prison particularly women in terms of really hard policymaker convincing data it's just not there it's just not there there is stuff there we we know it's not you know it's potentially has huge huge damage to the children and I think that's an area we've really got to look at I mean we don't actually know how many children are out in the community who have an imprisoned parent you know they're literally they're not counted it's disgraceful. Well, there's much work to do. So wishing you and the team at Southampton University all the luck in the world with it. And um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Finally, I would like to send a huge thanks to all of the amazing guests that have come on this series of The Justice Podcast. It has been fascinating for me to record. People have been generous with their time, their expertise and so many people sharing personal experiences with us. So thank you to all of you. Please do go back and listen to other episodes if you've not done so yet. 
And we really hope that the voices and learning we have collated can really help to move us forward in our mission to redesign the justice system for women and their children. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.